everybody, the Omniplex is open. We have a very special guest with us today, comics creator, writer, J.M. DeMatteis. Welcome. Hello. Happy to be here. If uh, you're unfamiliar with his work, uh, but you've been a comic reader for the last 40 years, yeah, go check your shelf. You've probably got some of his stuff on it. And I found that out when, in the lead up to this episode, I was looking at my shelf and I realized, yeah, that's that's really true because I got the recent Superman City of Tomorrow Volume 2 came in from uh, uh, Amazon. Got a writing credit on that. I've got uh, your incredible the uh, Hulk magazine issues. Those are on my shelf. I've been reading Justice League International lately. Coast, you were the scripter on that. My hardcover of Craven's Last Hunt is sitting on my shelf. It, and, and then that was the same the weekend that I got the Superman City of Tomorrow volume. That was the weekend that I went to see Wonder Woman 84, which has Maxwell Lord, a character you co-created. That's right. Yeah. So prolific is an understatement. I mean, I could keep going with works. Um, the legendary Joker going sane story, which that's a story that I had friends who, before they even really like had good trades or anything, I had friends that were foaming at the mouth about got to find this story and I couldn't track it down for the longest time. They collected it a few years back and now it's out of print again. Yeah. And it's out of print again. I would love to see it back in print. It's one of my favorite stories that I've ever done actually. Well, it it should be because it's one that I, I love it dearly. I, I know that it gets compared to the killing joke a lot. I actually vastly prefer it to killing joke if I'm honest. Well, that's high praise. Thank you. I appreciate that. Speaking of Alan Moore, uh, you've done you did the adaptation of For the Man Who Has Everything, which I watched this morning. Right for Justice League Unlimited. That's right. All, all which is all on HBO Max now, which is quite yes, a yes. In fact, you I discovered it. that that all the all the DCU animated movies that I've done are all on uh, HBO Max and Justice League Unlimited and Batman: The Brave and the Bold. So a lot of my stuff is out there on. It's nice to have it all in one place. Something I was very appreciative when uh, doing research for this episode. Uh, I have Son of Batman on DVD and wanted to, I knew there were other movies out there for it and wanted to continue. So this was the perfect opportunity to check out the rest of them, which were uh, written by you. Uh, Batman versus Robin, right? The the follow up. All right. Batman Bad Blood. That's right. I forgot I did two of them. (laughs) Completely forgot. (laughs) Really, really great Mm -hmm. movies. Uh, uh, Batman versus Robin has probably the creepiest villain in any of the DC animated movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when you see who the credited voice was, it's a trip. Uh, <laughs> I almost don't want to spoil it for people because it's a joy that should be out there. I mean, again, I was looking at your Wikipedia page this morning, and it's you've written for Teen Titans Go, the real Ghostbusters, the '80s Twilight Zone, which I love deeply. That's that's a show that I have very soft spot. That was the first TV script that I ever sold, yeah. That's cool. Um, Of course, real Ghostbusters, I grew up watching that. You did an episode of that. Um, The number of characters that you've written for, and this really is no exaggeration, it's just easier to list what you haven't written for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can move on from all my credits now, and let's have a conversation. How's that? (laughs) Yes, yes. We've made our point. Um, In fact, you mentioning that that was your thing that you got started with on TV. um, Yeah. I guess that's an inevitable question to start with is how did you get started in comics and all all the media that you do? Because, I mean, you have a career that includes music. Uh, it's it's really a very expansive career. 
Yeah, um, you know, it was just, I always like to joke, and well, it's only half a joke, to say God only made me good at a few things, you know, so I had very little choice <laughs> but to go into a creative field because I would have been completely uh, a mess in any other field. I was not made for the nine to five world. Um, you know, the few times I, I tried having a nine to five job, it was a disaster, you know, but I was always creative from the time I was a kid. I was always drawing and then I was playing music and, and then I'd be writing. So that was just, it's just who I am. And, and I never take it for granted ever how lucky I am that I have been able to make my life and my career and my living by being the same person I was when I was a kid, you know, the same kid that was laying on the floor, floor drawing pictures for hours is the same person I am now, except now I get paid for it. You know? um, so I'm very, very grateful. Uh, but really, so it was just that I was always creative and I was, you know, drawing and writing stories. And when I got a little older, I was playing in rock and roll bands and all that. And along with that, I always loved comics. And so, you know, I was at, at a certain point, I was I was uh, doing rock and roll journalism, writing for a lot of music papers, doing record reviews and concert reviews and things like that, and knocking on the door at, at DC and Marvel, and at first getting nowhere. And then eventually, this is a very long story cut, very short, I started selling stories to Paul Levitz at DC. This is back in the days when they had the all those anthology comics, House of Mystery, House of Secrets, yes. Weird War Tales, all those comics. And which I call, they were like the vaudeville of comics. It was where, you know, you kind of went to learn your craft and no one was really looking, you know? So, and you'd write these little six to eight page stories where you, you, you know, you do enough of those, you begin to, and, and these eight page stories would have to be filled with plot and character and theme and character growth and all this stuff all in six or eight pages. So it was a great, great way to learn about writing a story in a comic book format. And it was funny because just today I saw an article about, some weird war tales story that I did years and years ago. And it was the first full length story I'd ever done. I'd been doing all these six and eight page stories and I pitched Paul on this one story. And, uh, and he said, Oh, that's, that's a big one. Let's do, we'll do the whole issue, which for me, after like the longest thing I'd ever done was eight pages. It was like, it was like having a thousand page novel, you know, it's like writing the brothers Karamazov 24 pages. Oh my God. And plus I got a page rate increase at the same time. So it was like, I felt like I was the wealthiest man on earth for my 24 pages. But unfortunately, right after that happened was the infamous DC implosion. And uh, I, I didn't get any work from DC for nine months after that. But, you know, but in the meantime, I kept doing my journalism thing and uh, kind of knocking on the door at Marvel at the same time. And uh, then things opened up at, at DC again. I, you know, kept working for them. And Jim Shooter read my stuff over at Marvel, which he, he really he saw something in my work that he really, really liked. Um, and I have to step back for a second and just say also how lucky I was. The, the editors that I got to work with at the beginning of my career, Paul Levitz, who was actually a couple of years younger than me, but had worked, been working at DC since high school. So, you know, here's this, this, this young guy who could barely at that time grow a mustache, but he really knew the business and he was such a good editor. And I worked with Jack Harrison and Len Wein, who became really my first real mentor in the business. Just an amazing guy who helped me so much. And then Jim Shooter at Marvel. And so eventually Shooter offered me a contract. I went over to Marvel and started over there. And I've been bouncing all over the place through comics and TV and film and novels and everything ever since. Very cool. You mentioned those uh, six to eight pagers. I, I actually, while I was snowed in, one of the things that I had to read was I picked up a, a copy of the uh, Jack Kirby uh, and then the Lieber Brothers uh, Monster Omnibus. 
So I know what you're talking about, about how those stories, they have to get in, get out, and just, they're fantastic, and we really don't have anything like that anymore, and that's a real luck. No, we really don't, and it's a, it's, a great, it's a great skill. And I was so, it was so helpful to me to learn that way. And in the beginning, and I, I teach these writing workshops, which I will plug several times. I was going to ask extensive one, questions about those, actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I ha, we'll get to but I have one coming up in April. Uh, so but when, I, when I talk to, to my class, I always tell them, I still have the letter, you know, Paul, all the letters from Paul Levitz when I first started to write to him and all the notes he gave me, and l- literally gave me these guidelines that there should be no more than 5.5 panels per page on average and no more than 35 words a panel. So if anyone knows my work, they know that I can be very verbose. So, you know, but what an incredible, it's almost like having to do a haiku or something. You had to be really, really concise. And I would literally sit and count every word in every panel and then average it out to make sure I didn't have more than 35 words per panel and not more than 5.5 panels per page and all these rules and regs. And Paul said to me very early on, you know, you got to learn the rules before you break the rules. Because in my head, I wanted to be Steve Gerber or Steve Engelhardt, these writers that I really admired who were experimenting and playing. But you can't experiment until you learn the basics. And it was a fantastic way uh, to learn the basics of uh, and the basic craft of comics. And then once you get that down, then you get out your dynamite and you blow that up, you know? Yeah, uh, you're right. Because, I mean, there... As I said, I've been I went through Justice League International. DC Unlimited is such a gift, I have to say, because I've been playing with that service a lot while I've been snowed in. And I mean, yeah, the difference between those early issues of Justice League that you did compared to the I can't believe it's not the Justice League stuff, it's, it's pretty great. I highly recommend all of this, by the way. If y'all haven't read it, it's every bit of it's fun. Um, yeah, we've got they put out so far two. Whatever the plural of omnibuses is, it omnibuses? <laughs> I guess so. Omnibuses, yes. Omnibuy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I used to think it was omnibuy, and I looked it up, and it wasn't. You know, Aww. so but there's two of them. Omnibuy is the better word. You know, even if it's not yeah. right, it's it's a much better word. Um, it sounds better. There's two two of them. I, they've got these giant books. I could barely fit them on the shelf. And then they've done a lot of smaller collections, and just a bunch of a bunch recently came out this past year. So they're always always collecting and recollecting these stories, and. Uh, yeah, that was a fantastic gig working, you know, working with Keith and Kevin and our editor Andy Helfer and all the other great artists that we had on that book. It was a it was a magical gig, a really magical gig. Yeah, because uh, as I was going back through that, it really struck me because I've actually read the two minis earlier. You, you read those first, and then you went back. Yeah. Is that what you say? Yeah, huh? Yeah, yeah. because the the library that I was at had the first six issue trade, and then it had those two collected. And uh, I have also those two physically somewhere in my house. Uh, my house is filled with comics, um, a fact that drives my <laughs> wife nuts. So, yeah, really, they're fascinating books, uh, so much fun. And I have to ask, like, what was that experience like? Because uh, that is such an iconic seminal run as it should be. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I got dragged kicking and screaming into one of the best gigs of my career, you know. Uh, Andy <laughs> Helfer one of the best editors to ever sit behind a desk at DC Comics and just a great guy. We discovered when we met up at DC that we had literally grown up across the street from each other and didn't know it. Um, And so he had hired me to wrap up the previous incarnation of the Justice League, which was the Justice League Detroit thing. That that big Legends miniseries was coming and they wanted to wrap up that series. So I did the 
the story where, where uh, Professor Ivo killed Vibe and Steel and all it killed off a bunch of the characters and kind of wrapped up and ended that league. And I thought that I was done with that. Now I was a huge Justice League fan as a kid, and and then as he, and, you know through all my through all my comic book reading, and and still am. But I, I never really identified the Detroit League, you know, with the Justice League. It was another. It was it was a very different version, as was ours, you know. So I thought I was done. I did the Detroit thing, and then Andy called me up one day and said, "Look, we're doing this new version of the Justice League." Originally, Keith Giffen was going to uh, write it himself, and Keith. So, and the way Keith does plots, which is uh, beautiful, he actually draws them. So he, he'll draw like a mini yeah. comic with suggested bits of dialogue and notes in the corner, whatever. Uh, but he was actually going to script the first one also, and he had he'd kind of he'd written a first draft script, and he wasn't happy with it, and I guess Andy wasn't happy with it, and they said we want you to be the scripter, come on the book, and dialogue uh, for Keith, and I read what Keith did, and my feeling was this is fine, what do you need me for, you know? But Andy Andy was like a Jewish mother; he could like guilt you into anything in the most lovable way, you know. So before I knew it, I'm writing this book, and for the first six issues or so, I just kept saying. Guys, you don't really need me, you, you know. You don't, and what I realized because I was just, it wasn't hard. And I had this this program in my head that shouldn't this be more difficult? I mean, I, you know, I, I'm having too much fun here. This must there must be something wrong here. So I actually at one point announced that I was leaving the book, and 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 then I kind of took a step back and said, "Are you an idiot? This is so much fun, you know." And then five years later, and five thousand spinoffs later, there we were. But as it evolved, it just evolved into this wonderful collaboration with Keith where he would do these plots and Keith being Keith, there was no creative ego involved. So he could do a plot and I was free to layer as many other things and characterization and new storylines on top of Keith's incredible foundational plots that he would do. He would see what I'd do in the script. He'd build on that in the next plot. He'd throw it back to me. And we always said it was like a game of tennis, you know, just us lobbing yeah. the ball back and forth. And then of course we had Kevin McGuire who uh, was just like, I mean, Andy, that Andy picked us at all is amazing to, to figure out that, that these three people were going to work together. Kevin was brand new to the business. And here's this guy who does the best acting on the page of any artist out there. And that's, that was the key to that book was, you know, was characterization and banter. So you needed someone, not that we knew, I'll, I'll get back to that. You needed someone who could really bring that alive on the page. And Kevin did. But uh, the thing I wanted to say is that we didn't know what we were doing. You asked Keith, yeah, we did not know what we were doing. It wasn't like we no one sat down and said, let's do a superhero book, team book that uh, has a sense of humor to it. So it'll play like a superhero sitcom, you know, but it'll be serious adventure. Too. But we just we just kind of went along, you know, and Keith had being Keith, there was some humor in his plot. So I would build on that and then I would get encouraged to do that. And, he, and before we knew it, the tone of the book was created really through the interaction of the characters themselves. There's an old cliche, you know, that the characters come alive on the page. And on in that book, it was really true. It was the characters talking to each other. And then, you know, uh, you know Keith's plots, my dialogue, and then the way Kevin had them acting on the page, they just came alive in this wonderful way. And the book just took off. I can see that because it, as I noted, it really does have this nice organic evolution. And yeah, the book has been, it's a constant reprint staple for DC and it should be a, uh... I noticed that each of the trades they put out has gotten like bigger and bigger. There's one volume with six issues, and now there's one with nine, and now there's one with eighteen. <laughs> they, 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 they've been growing because um, uh, the trade that I've got digitally is uh, the eighteen, and it's again, it's a fantastic read. I highly recommend people get the chance to read it. Um, but yeah, uh, I did want to ask about your uh, 
TV work especially. Um, sure. Because, you know, we've covered how you got into comics. How did you get into television? Then? You know, it was a very similar thing. You know, like I said, when I got into comics, it was just like writing letters to DC and I got through to somebody who got through to Paul Levitz and I started sending him stuff. And, and you know, I had studied screenwriting a little bit. Um, and it was always one of my goals because my goal was never to be, quote, a comic book writer. It was just to be a writer. I was a journalist. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to, you know, I, was, I wanted, just want to write. I, I'm not, I'm not, don't, and my advice to anybody out there who's writing, don't ever limit yourself. <laughs> don't say I'm a this writer or that writer. You're a writer and write anything that comes along that they put in front of your face, you know. Um, I do marketing, so, so I understand. Yeah, yeah. Because, you, you know, you, you, you want to be as versatile as possible because of your, A, because creatively it keeps you fresh. And B, if you're trying to survive as a freelance writer, you mm-hmm. got to keep it versatile. You have to. You have to. Um, but anyway, so I'm a huge, huge, huge Twilight Zone fan. And I, this was back in the 80s, and I, and I read an article saying they were reviving the Twilight Zone on CBS. And I just happened to notice that one of the names of the people involved in the show was a guy named Alan Brennert. <laughs> now, Alan is, yes. a, is a novelist and a TV writer, but he's also written comics. He hasn't written a lot of comics, but just about every comic he's written is brilliant because he's that good. I know that when they did the Legends of the Dark Knight volume for him, it was one of the most hotly sought after things on Twitter. Yeah, he's, he's just uh, he's a, a, a wonderful guy and just a brilliant writer. Another lesson is this is there was no email in those days, you know, but this, you can do the same thing. now. It never hurts to write a letter. Or send an email or try, you know, or, or just, you know, approach somebody. It may work, it may not. But in this case, you know, I knew Al and I had a connection through comics. So I wrote to him and I said, God, I would love to do something for this show. And he said, pitch me some ideas. And so I pitched a bunch of ideas and then, but they were done for the first season. I was at the first season, I think. And whatever it was. And they said, well, we were going to yeah. we'll consider your idea for the second season. And, and then I pitched it uh, and they bought it. And I wrote my first TV script and I, Flew out to L.A. and I got to watch them film it and then they canceled the show. <laughs> and so it took about, you know, the show got canceled, I don't know, in the fall or something. And that summer they burned off the rest of the episodes and they played my episode. And um, <laughs> but, you know, it didn't matter. It was, you know, it's just like, you know, that first script that I sold to Paul. I didn't care if they ever even published it. You know what I mean? It was like they're letting me write a comic book story. They're paying me and I'm learning this is incredible. You know, and it was the same thing. You know, the first time you hear an actor say your words in any way, shape or form is an amazing thing. So it was just, it was, and being such a Twilight Zone fan, even though it wasn't the Twilight Zone, obviously it couldn't have been, you know, to, to be, uh, to have my first sale be to a version of the Twilight Zone was really, really thrilling. Really thrilling. That's, that's incredible. Cause I mean, I, I'll be honest, my dad, when I was uh, 12, got me the Mark Scott Zikri, uh Twilight Zone Companion. Oh, what a great book. Yeah. Oh, that is, yeah, that is a book that my copy of it is just beat to all hell by now because I have read it over and over again. Like my dad basically wanted me to read it and then to watch the show over and over again mm-hmm. because he wanted me to understand that this is what science fiction can be. Mm-hmm. And he thought that was the best it was going to get. And I agree with him. I agree. Yeah. Still probably my favorite television show of all time. Richard Matheson is it, he is one of my favorite writers of all time. Today's his birthday. Today is oh, Richard yeah. Matheson's birthday. I just saw that on Twitter this morning. Yeah. So there we go. One of the best. I mm-hmm. His his stuff is in my DNA. Um, so, yeah. And, of course, I'm a huge writer. I mean, the number of writers on that show that were so brilliant. It's, yeah. 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 It was a small group Dang. of brilliant writers for the most part. It was like, you know, yeah. four or five guys. And, and I don't know, Serling wrote like 
seventy percent of those shows yeah. himself, which is astonishing. Oh yeah, the the great thing about Serling is you didn't read about like what he thought in his personal life. You're like, okay, great. Don't ever don't ever have to worry about you. Uh, don't ever have to worry about mm-hmm. retroactively having to go back and erase you. He's that was a cool dude right there. Yeah, an amazing guy, and, and died died so young too. You think oh, about all he could have done after that. Yeah, yeah. But. But uh, yeah, cause like as I said, I was thinking a lot of your uh, credits. Uh, so many of them are in animation. Yeah. Uh, how how did you wind up in animation? Same, you know. It's I stumbled in backwards, just the way I did with the with the with the JLI, and, and that's why I, the other thing I like to tell my students is always be open to the happy accidents of life. <laughs> I had written for the live action Superboy TV show, which most people don't even know it existed. So don't worry if you've never heard of it. It was on for like four years, you know, and I, I, I wrote for it and was on staff a little bit for the for the final season. And there I met a guy named Stan Berkowitz, who was the producer of the show. And Stan and I became friends. And somewhere after Superboy ended, it's one of these, you see how things bounce back and forth and connect up. So Marty Pasco, another uh, well-known comic book writer, was working on the 90s animated Spider-Man show. And he had asked me about doing something for that show. And I said, oh, you know, you know, Stan was done with Super. You should meet my friend Stan. Stan is such a good writer. So Stan ended up, I, I don't think I, I ended up doing something for that show later, but Stan ended up going on staff on that show. And that opened up this door for him where he became an Emmy award-winning animation writer, you know? And he worked on all the shows, Justice League Unlimited and so many other shows. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, Stan Huge is just credits. a great, great writer and, 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 and a really, really great guy. So... A few years go by, and now it was like, I don't know, 2003 or something, and Stan's working on Justice League, and he called me up and said, hey, you want to do an episode of Justice League? And honestly, even though I'd, I think I'd written that Ghostbusters thing you mentioned, um, which also, story editor on that was J. Michael Straczynski. So yes. it's everything everything ties up, you know? But I never had, it was never in my head or heart to have a career writing animation. It just wasn't, it just wasn't on my radar. It didn't I didn't, you know, it's not something I particularly cared about. But when someone calls up and says, hey, you want to do this? It's, hey, it's a gig and it's Stan. Sure, I'll give it a try. So the story that they give me to adapt is Alan Moore's For the Man Who Has Everything. And and what I discovered working uh, on that and on that show is that the, the art of writing for animation, is, especially if you look at Justice, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, I mean, one of the very best versions of the Justice League that's ever been done in any any medium, any medium, that they didn't have those guys go and, 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 and write and direct the movies, you know? Um, so I, I fell in love with, with the form, and, and they, lo- they loved what I did on that episode, so they kept giving me more, and that quite, you know, without any planning, all of a sudden I had a career in animation. It's been going on for like 16 years now. So uh, it's great. So I got, you know, and writing for Justice League Unlimited, which is a show that over the years seems to have gained and gained in its, uh, in its prestige. Fans really love that show and really look back on that as a high watermark uh, for the Justice League and for superhero animation. So I'm, I'm very grateful that I got to be part of that show. I think I wrote seven episodes for that one. It's, I, I noticed when I was watching it on, like, I have a really big high-definition TV. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it looked as good as if I'd watched it on a big on a, a theatrical screen. The animation mm-hmm. is so lush on that show. Yeah, it's great. I actually just started re-watching it because it's, it's all on HBO Max. So I'm on the treadmill and I'm watching Justice League. And just forgetting my own contributions, you know, which are in the scheme of things were small. Just a great show. And I just watched this two-parter with Aquaman when they introduced Aquaman. And that could have been a movie. I mean, it could have been a great movie. 
but uh, yeah, they just they, fantastic job, fantastic job on that show. And I loved, I loved writing for that one. When they've done the Fathom screenings of the uh, DC animated movies, I have gone mm-hmm. to see them. Actually, I should point out. Uh, so that's how I got to see Death and Return. Yeah, they work really well on a big screen. I've noticed when I've gone to the screenings of my of my own uh, films. Yeah. You know, what, what I also learned in, in working in this field is that there's a whole, whole big, big, enthusiastic, hardcore audience for these shows and these films that aren't necessarily hardcore comic book fans, you know? Yeah. I think they're just fans of that anim- the animated universes, you know? And uh, I remember we did, it was, might have been Batman versus Robin. We did a premiere at WonderCon. They had thousands of people there for this thing. And, you know, really enthusiastic. And I think a lot of them, like when we were doing the signing, had no who, clue who I was in terms of my comic book career, you know. And it's really interesting. And they're just, they love those films and those TV shows. So it's sort of an audience that kind of meets the comic book audience in the corner. And there's some crossover, but there's a lot that doesn't cross over. Just like there are people that are huge fans of, you know, live action superhero movies who have never picked yes. up a comic book in their life. Well, I did want to ask you about... Uh, your experiences working on those movies. Uh, we did all watch uh, Red Sun, which I don't have enough good to say about it. Really, it's it's that's a tremendous watch. But uh, so, how did you wind up working on the uh, movie side of things? You know, I just uh, I just got invited to. In fact, if I I think it might have been Jeff Johns who who I was at a, a DC retreat and he knew I did all, a lot of animation work. He said, "Oh, you want to work on one of the movies." And a little while after that, I, I got a call, and uh, maybe from Mike Carlin or James Tucker or one of those guys, and or Alan Burnett, and off we went. And they liked what I did. Same thing with the, you know, the way the the TV stuff started. They liked what I did on that. So there was another one, and then there was another one. I think I've done, I don't know, five of them by now, maybe five or six, something like that. <laughs> um, and so you know, the, you know, the door opens, and it, you know, you do the best job you can, so that you hope that they say that was good. Let's do it again. You know. And that seems to be the way it works. But but Red Sun, yeah, Red Sun was a challenge because that's a really comp. You, you read uh, the original story; it's a really complex story. Uh, I, I always say that that Mark's story, it almost in a way, it reminds me of Kirby in that there's so many ideas in that story. Like every page is like popping with some other cool mm-hmm. idea, and there's another cool idea, and here's another cool idea. So there's so much in there. So the the the, the job of winnowing that thing down so you could make a a 90 minute film out of it. And I, and, and these are, it's a very collaborative process. So, you know, Jim Krieg, one of the producers there and Bruce Tim who produced that movie as well, the three of us would get on the phone and just, you know, get on the phone for two hours and talk story and peel this thing apart and put it back together. And what if we did this? And what if we did this? Well, what about that? You know, and that was, that was really, it was a challenge. It was a, it was a fun challenge, but it was a challenge to try to, when you adapt something, what I've learned in, because a number of these animated movies that I've done have been at least based on comic book stories, we are adapting sometimes uh, closely, sometimes very broadly. Uh, the Constantine movie that I did was sort of a broad adaptation of a great Constantine graphic novel called All His Engines. But, but you know, the trick is to, to hold on to the, hold on to the essence of the story. You know, you know, you don't have to. Don't, all the details don't have to be there. What you want is the heart and the soul and the essence of that story and those characters, and then you can change whatever you want around that to suit the medium that you're in. And we changed a lot in Superman Red Sun, but I, I, I think that we remained true to the essence of that wonderful story that we were adapting. And that's the thing that I thought was so interesting about it was that it wasn't because there's the motion comic. If people wanted to just watch the literal comic, right. But I really did like that. Yeah, the movie is 
a movie. It is its own independent thing, and it is such an interesting adaptation. Uh, I loved what you did working with the Court of Owls stuff from Scott Snyder uh, on Batman versus Robin. Right, that was fun stuff. The, the well, because so, again, you know, the Court of Owls is such a cool concept, you know. So get to get to play with that, but it wasn't a literal adaptation of his Court of Owls story. We just we folded that in. Uh, to other elements. You know, we had a lot of elements from there. There were some elements from another story. And then you sort of, that becomes your foundation. And then you build your new version of that story. And you, it's almost like, you know, you take this foundation, you start to build up, but then you're also adding, adding other structures around it that weren't there in the original story. So uh, yeah, yeah, I love, I love playing with that stuff too. Batman versus Robin was a fun one to work on. And again, I mean, it was kind of a similar situation where uh, Bad Blood, I could recognize a lot of stuff that was like, oh, well, I know what comic this kind of reminds me of, but it wasn't like, oh, this is Battle for the Cowl. It was, well, this has a flavor of that. Um, and again, with all this stuff on HBO Max, I really do recommend people do sit down and watch these. One of the things I really love about these movies is they are, compared to the big, quote-unquote, big movies, the big screen ones, they're relatively short. Yeah, they're usually between, usually between 70 and 90 minutes, yeah. And yeah. I love that. Because they, I never come away from one of these movies feeling cheated. I never come away going, well, I wanted more. I'm really amazed at what you and the writers that work on it and the directors and the entire team at the animation, they, what they do. Because it, it is so get in, get out. Right. And within that get in, that get out, you have to really deliver a plot and character and character arcs and growth. And that's what I learned, you know, working on Justice League Unlimited when I – when I gained so much respect for the, for what goes into writing a essentially without commercials a 22 minute um, animated half hour, you know, look at those Justice League shows and they are filled with great characterization and big action and arcs that you know character arcs that continue through the season and so it was for for essentially a show that probably the network would say was aimed at nine year old boys or whatever. It was really a very sophisticated show. You know, with a lot of just, it was just so well done. And so that uh, I learned so much uh, that way. And, and again, you know, the, with the movies, it's a lot more expansive because, you know, next to 22 minutes, having a full 90 minute movie is, is, is a big thing, but you're right compared to, well, the truth is some of these live action movies are really bloated and go beyond Uh two hours, then they don't need to be. And you you watch some of these films, not just superhero movies. I mean, any movie. And you're like, if they just would have pulled out half an hour, uh, this would have been a really good movie. So, you know, you can't you can't screw around too much with 90 minutes. It all has to be meat. You know, all the meat has to be there when you're doing with 90 minutes. You can't you just can't, you know, stop and amble around for a while. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I went back and rewatched uh, Men in Black a few years ago was that it's only 90 minutes. And as a kid, I felt like that was a little bit of a cheat. But as an mm-hmm. adult, I was like, wow, there just isn't a wasted second in this movie. Yeah, that movie has a great pace to it. It really does. I mean, that's that's Ed Solomon for you, admittedly, because that seems to be his niche. I've noticed all of his movies seem to have that. Uh, I noticed that you've done the uh, the uh, Constantine and uh, Deathstroke. Those had kind of interesting. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong about those. But weren't those released on the CW Seed, or am I wrong about that? It's a very, no, you're right. It's a very interesting way uh, the, those two projects came about because they are done through a, t- a very a different pipeline from the regular DC animation. It's done through CW Seed, which is part of the CW network. So you're dealing with uh, executives at CW and CW Seed as opposed to the, the regular DC Warner animation people. 
what what we do is in both cases i'm writing a full 90 minute movie but what they then do and what we keep in mind through the whole thing is that these 90 minute movies are going to be broken up into chapters which are going to play on as short short episodes on cw seed with whole chunks of the 90 minute movie are not going to be in it so i uh, god bless the editors that can edit this thing down and have still have the story make complete sense you know they know exactly what to leave out and so they'll play what they usually do is they'll play like a half a season on cw seed because i guess cw seed is free so people that want this content for free can go to seed and watch the shortened versions uh, with these with these episodes and then they wait x number of months and then they release the full length movie which has all these scenes and other things going on that will never be on cw seed and then 6 months or 8 months after that they release the balance on cw seed so you've got the short version on CW Seed for free, and then you've got the full-length version you know, on DVD and streaming. And obviously, that's what you get on HBO Max. You get the full-length versions of Deathlock. Death, Deathlock. All these characters with death in their name, I get them all mixed up. <laughs> Deathstroke and Constantine. Uh, the Constantine, you know, the, well, I really love working on both of those. Uh, the Constantine movie of all these movies uh, may be my favorite. Uh, I really, you know, I love them. I, it sounds corny, or uh, but it's true. I loved working on all of these because the people I've worked with on them, you know, the writers, the directors, the producers, you know, just great people. But the Constantine one, every once in a while, one just sort of steps up and shines a little bit more. And I, for me, that was the Constantine movie. And the other one that came out recently, uh, I guess at the end of last year, not when I mean, the end of 2019, uh, if, if you go onto, onto HBO Max, there's uh, Batman Death in the Family. And they, there are a bunch of shorts on there. And I did a short with uh, Neil Gaiman's death character, uh, beautifully directed by Sam Liu, who was a great director and, and had the germ of the idea for the story. And, and again, me and Sam and Jim Creed got on the phone and worked it out. And brings us back to the Twilight Zone because, you know, Jim and I are both huge Twilight Zone fans. And if you look at that death short, it's a great Twilight Zone episode is what it is. It's about, what, 20, 18 minutes, 20 minutes or something? 19 minutes, and it, yeah. And it plays like a, a, a sweet... Uh, haunting little uh, Twilight Zone episode. And that, I think, is one of the best things I've ever done in animation as well. And also, the, the fun of that one was, you know, it's death. It's not a superhero story. Nobody's running, jumping, blowing up buildings, or punching anybody in, in their face. It's all character and mystery. And, and it's a very sweet, touching, disturbing, haunting story. And I'm very proud of that one. I do want to point out, by the way, you're the second guest that we've had to work on the character of death. Uh, in the last year. Really? Yeah, we had uh, Dirk Mags. Oh, oh, right. He's doing yeah. the audio, right? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And interestingly enough, he he also kind of pointed out that about the pacing. Uh, he had some similar thoughts. Um, I, I The death was, uh, death was another one that I watched today in preparation for this cast. And it's, it's poetry. It's really lovely. And... The voice, yeah, the work, voice is work is so is great. Cool. The voice work, you know, on all these uh, these these movies and all the DC shows, the 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 voice casting, it's just it's just when I when I find out who's doing these voices because I often find out after the fact, you know, I'm not writing it knowing who's going to be in these movies, you know, and then it's like, wait, Michael Chiklis is Deathstroke? That is really cool, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Um, or that we got, you know, that we got. Uh, uh, Matt Ryan to do Constantine in the animated movie, you know, it was fantastic. He's done it twice in animation because he also did Justice League Dark. Right, he did the two Justice League Dark movies. He did the Constantine movie, you know. Um, and uh, I, I got to meet him when we did the premiere of this thing at WonderCon. Very nice guy. Very nice guy. 
Um, and you know, he's he's and he's great in the part. You know, so, some of these comic book castings are like someone reached into the comic and pulled the guy out, and oh look, it's Matt Ryan. You know, um, uh, you know, just like Robert Downey with Iron Man. There's certain some of the casting. Uh, Chris Evans is Captain America. Just perfect casting. It's like the character has come alive, and Matt Ryan is a perfect example of that. I, I really have to say, uh, I love Diedrich Bader as Lex Luthor on Red Sun. Oh, and Red Sun, yeah. And he was Batman. <laughs> on, he was Batman on Brave and the Bold, yeah. Yes, he was. Yeah. I was going to say that I loved him on that. I mean, I love Bader in anything, but I, I felt like he got the Weasley, but also not wrong quality of Luthor that I loved so much. Mm-hmm. It's probably my second favorite Luther, honestly, uh, behind Clancy Brown. You know, what's interesting is we talked a little bit earlier about this live action Superboy show that that nobody knows about. And for the second half of the of the run, they changed cast in the middle. And a guy named Sherman Howard played Lex Luthor on that show. And most again, most people don't even know the show exists. He was one of the best Lex Luthers ever. I mean, the guy was a fantastic actor and did such a great job as as Luther. He was really, really good. If you ever get a chance, I don't know where those shows are available. I think you can get them like on iTunes uh, and things like that. And I bet you that they have to eventually show up on HBO Max. I mean, you would think with all this stuff. And he was just uh, uh, just really, really su- a superb Lex Luthor. And I, I also have to pause and note that Jason Isaacs on uh, Red Sun. Yeah, you talk about casting. Jason, I love Jason Isaacs. What a brilliant, brilliant actor. He's done so much voice work, and he's killed all of it. There was a, there was a series that he did, it must, it must be eight years ago now or, or more. Uh, it was very short-lived. It was called Awake. I don't know if you ever, if you ever get a chance yes. to find it streaming. I've seen it. And he was a detective who was living in two realities. And he wasn't sure which of these two realities was reality. And I knew him from the Harry Potter movies, you know, this British guy who was Malfoy's dad. And I was like, I don't know, half a dozen episodes into it before someone said, you know, that's Jason Isaacs. And he was so good. And he so submerged himself in that character that I didn't even realize it. He is he is that good. And, you know, when he was on, I don't know if you watch Star Trek Discovery, but I, and, and if you don't, I don't want to give anything away. But there, I know where you're going with this. Yes, you know I, where I'm going? He was, I was cheering for him the whole time, even, even at the end when you shouldn't have been cheering for him, I was cheering for him. Spoiler alert. Um, you know, he's just, he's, he became like one of my all time favorite Star Trek captains. He's just that good. And he's, he's, he's awesome. Um, I, uh, I did want to ask, um, you have this workshop coming up and I'm going to give you the space to tell us all about it. So I started these, uh, it's got to be about 10 years ago now. I did, I did a, an interview, at, I think it was at the Museum of Comic Art in Manhattan one night. Uh, my friend Danny Fingeroth was interviewing me about my career. Great and we, taught, we, got into, we got into the really nuts and bolts of things. We talked for like hours. And I really, you know, what we do as creators, especially the longer we do it, you know, we work intuitively. I don't think about my process when I'm writing. I'm just writing, you know. And I kind of finished the night and went, you know. I know a lot about this stuff and I've been doing it a long time. And, 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 you know, when I started in the business, I had guys like Len Wein and Paul Levitz and Jim Shooter to kind of teach me the ropes and say, this is here, here are the basics, here are the rules. Here's what you have. Here's how you learn about story and this and that. So I thought, you know, I should take this knowledge that I have and put together a workshop and see what happens. And, and I did the first one some years ago and I, I don't do them a lot or I haven't done them a lot. I do them when, when the whim hits, you know? So I, so, and inevitably I, I, we would do, when we did, we did them live, we would do it for a weekend. We'd start on Friday, go to Sunday. And, uh, 
inevitably it would be just a great group of people. And also inevitably through their questions, I would find myself learning because I would have to articulate things about my own process that I'd never really thought about, you know? So it evolved into this workshop where we talk about all the nuts and bolts of the craft uh, and the art and, and, you know, down to, you know, script formats and working with editors and characterization and dialogue, but also what I love about what we do, which is sort of the metaphysics of writing and where the hell do these stories come from? And are we writers? Are we channelers? I mean, there's, there's a whole sort of mystical process to writing that I love to talk about too. So we, we balance both and people have been asking me for years, oh, are you ever going to bring it online? Are you ever going to bring it online? And I thought, yes, at some point, but God, it sounds like a real headache, you know? Um, and then of course COVID came along and it's like, well, either I'm going to bring it online or I'm not going to do it for a while, you know? And uh, a friend of mine started this new website called ComicsPlex, and he said, I will host your website, and I'll take care of all the technical stuff for you, which took a huge weight off me. And we just did, the first one was like last November, and it was just, it went so well. I was so happy. I had such a great time. So we said, let's do another one. So we're doing another, it's called Imagination 101, and uh, for the online version, we do it over two weekends, so Saturday and Sunday for two weekends. It's 10 hours. And if you go to comicsplex.com, there's all the information you need about the dates in April and and what it costs and how to sign up, and it's all out there. But it's really, really fun. It's a, it's I think uh, it's been a great learning experience for the for the people in the class and a great learning experience for me as well. And we'll, we'll put all the links up and all that. We always do. Excellent. Excellent. And, and I also, another thing that I do that grew out of this is that um, some people want to work one-on-one. Some people come to me and say, well, I've got like a six-issue miniseries I'm working on, and I really need to focus on this and get it together and see what's wrong. And so people, I have something called Creation Point Story Consultation, and people will work with me one-on-one. I work with people on screenplays. I've worked with them on prose. I work with them on comics, whatever the piece is that they're working on. So we have the workshops, and then I have the one-on-one consultation. The workshops, you, again, you can find through ComicsPlex. And the consultation work, if you go to my website, uh, jmdmateus.com, uh, you can find it. There's a there's a section there called Story Consultation, so you can find out uh, everything there. Awesome. And one other project that I slipped my mind while we were talking about comics that I did want to bring up was Scooby Apocalypse. Yes. <laughs> because they've been reading that, and I realized I was about to let that one slide by, and I couldn't let that oh. happen. Oh, I wouldn't have let you. Trust me. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Albert and I have uh, read the uh, the first volume of Scooby Apocalypse at, at the very least in prep for this cast. And holy gosh. <laughs> holy gosh, golly jinkies. It, exactly. Jinkies and jeepers <laughs> and all that jazz. We made sure to get a few jinkies in there, you know? <laughs> oh, plenty of jinkies. <laughs> you know, that was one of the, you know, working with Keith Giffen, uh, who, who is. Uh, one of the most brilliant creative human beings that's ever been my pleasure to know and work with. Um, you know, I'll work with Keith on anything. My joke has always been, if the, you know, if Marvel called up and said, we want you and Keith and Kevin to do Millie the model, I go, sure. Because the fun <laughs> for me, it part, you know, it's in the end, yes, of course, it's about the characters, but, but it's the fun is about the collaboration. And I'll work with Keith on anything. And I work with Kevin on anything. So Keith called me up one day and said, you know, Jim Lee has this idea for the Scooby Apocalypse book and he wants us to do it. And I'm like, Scooby, what? You know, <laughs> but it's Keith. So, okay, I'll do it. And coincidentally, there was a short-lived uh, a Scooby-Doo TV series called Be Cool Scooby-Doo. 
And I was writing for that show at that time. Scooby-Doo had never entered my consciousness before that moment. And all of a sudden I'm writing the Scooby-Doo animated thing and we're working on Scooby Apocalypse. So I'm like up to my neck in Scooby-Doo, um, something I've never thought twice about in my entire life. But the fun of the fun of working with Keith and the fun of the premise that Jim Lee came up with. And then, he, you know, is that it really was a different spin on the on the characters and the stories. And they allowed us to just take that premise that Jim came up with and just run with it. And I found myself falling in love with these characters, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, having these conversations with people going, yeah, Scrappy-Doo, what a great character. You know, it's like, <laughs> what did I just say? What did I just say? But it's true, you know? But it's crazy because it is such a different take on the on it, but because the characters are so instantly recognizably characters. Mm-hmm. It's still pretty faithful. It's still very faithful. Oh, yeah. And very nuanced. Right. It's sort of faithful and completely different at the same time. And that I, maybe that's what makes it work. Maybe that's what makes it work. But I loved working on that book. We did it for three years. And uh, the great thing was we got enough warning that they were going to be canceling it. So, which rarely happens. Usually you're sort of caught and you never get to finish your story or you finish it in a half-assed way, you know? But this, there was enough time that we got to finish the story. Uh, Keith didn't do the last few issues. I did the last few issues by myself, but I got to like wrap up the story. And that was great. And give them an ending, an actual honest to God ending in a comic book. Wow, what an amazing thing, you know? Nice. Um, so yeah, I, I really, I, I, loved, I loved working on that. It, and, and, I'm, and I'm still astonished when I say, I loved working on that because, you know, Scooby-Doo, really? <laughs> and it was just, it was a great gig. It was a great gig. And we had like, you know, a lot of great artists on that book. We started out with Howard Porter and just went through a bunch of fantastic artists uh, the whole way. I think we ended up with Pat Olaf, who did the, the final arcs um, and a lot of great guys in between. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Fun book. Really fun book. I want to ask you, is there any of your work that you've done that you feel maybe you wish people were more familiar with? Oh, absolutely. And it's my creator, most of my creator owned work, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, cause I've, you know, as through my career, I've, I've made sure to go back and forth between working on their characters because they're always their characters. They're not my characters. Even if I create a character and he appears in Spider-Man, he's Marvel's character. If he appears in Justice League, he's DC's character when they're done. You know, they may send us a check when they use him in a movie, but it's not my character, you know? So I've always enjoyed going off on my own and creating my own world. Started back in the 80s when I did Moonshadow for Marvel's Epic line, which uh, really still remains one of the best things I've ever done. Uh, Dark Horse, about a year ago, uh, put out a brand new hardcover edition that's the most beautiful edition of Moonshadow that anybody's done. It started. We started at Marvel. We took it to Vertigo. At Vertigo, we did a sequel. They collected it there. Then we took it from uh, from DC Vertigo over to Dark Horse. So we'll keep going as long as we can keep that book in print, you know. Um, but uh, in a very uh, Brook, uh, you know Moonshadow, I did an autobiographical series called Brooklyn Dreams. Um, all the work that I did for Vertigo, Seekers into the Mystery, the last one. Just recently for Karen Berger's line at Dark Horse, I did The Girl in the Bay. Mike Cavallaro and I did a book for IDW called Impossible Incorporated. So I'm always working on my own stuff. And it doesn't get, you know, it's Moonshadow, Happily, you know, and Brooklyn Dreams over the years, people have found it and they have gained their reputations. But a lot of the creator-owned stuff, you know, people are running out to buy their superhero comics. And I understand that. So a lot of the creator-owned stuff gets lost in the shuffle. But, you know, in the end, that's the work I'm probably proudest of. Not that I'm not proud of the other work either, and I don't want to give that impression. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just more personal. It's more personal. And there's some magic 
to creating a universe from the ground up and creating your own characters and your own world that has never existed before. Just you and an artist and off you go. Uh, but, you know, I have to say at the same time, uh, and I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, everything a writer does is autobiographical in the end. I can look back at some Spider-Man stories that I've done and go, holy crap, that is so I, that is so deeply personal and so revealing of my own psyche and my life that if the readers knew how personal it was, I would be embarrassed. Do you know what I mean? It's funny because you were talking about how you remember being a kid, drawing and all that, and that's what death starts with is the main character. Exactly, and that's where that image came from. Mm-hmm. That was exactly right out of my childhood. And in discussing that main character that Sam Liu had had this idea for, Jim Krieg, Sam, and I all related to that character because we had all been that character, you know? I can imagine. And that's, to me, that's, the, that's, that's what makes for great story. I tell, I tell my students and kids, I mean this metaphorically, take a knife, stick it in your chest, and you have to bleed on the pages. You have to just, you have to be as deeply revealing. You have to be unafraid to root around in the deeps of your own psyche and let them all out. Let out the angels, let out the demons, let them all out. And that's what makes for great story. That's what makes for real characters. You know, your real pain, your real joy, your real trauma, your real love, all that has to go into those people. And then the fun is you pour, the, you, you pour yourself into it in the most deeply personal way. And then those characters become independent and take on lives of their own that have nothing to do with you. And it's a fascinating process. And, and I'm, I'm amazed by it practically every time I write. That's that's fantastic. What do you have coming next that you can talk about? You know, I have a lot coming next, and I can't talk about any of it. <laughs> that's, that's a great answer. That's a you know, great it's answer. true. I've got like um, two mainstream comics projects, you know, one each for the big two guys, but I can't talk about them. Um, uh, I'm doing a project for, there's an indie, an indie label called Black Mask. Uh, that my friend Matt Pizzolo uh, runs. It's a great little imprint. Can't talk about that. I'm developing three or four creator-owned comics. Can't talk about that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm in the process of discussing uh, a big new animated thing as well. Um, can't talk about that. So I'm very busy, but I can't tell you what I'm busy doing. I think that's the best answer that a person can give is, well, I'm working. Right, <laughs> that's a lot to look forward to. <laughs> I'm definitely working, and hopefully, maybe by the end of this year, you'll see some of this stuff begin to rear its head. You know, that's great. That's great. Um, Which, by the way, I um, just an aside looked it up, and you can definitely watch. Uh, you can rent Superboy on Amazon Prime. Oh, you can on Amazon yeah. Prime. Really? Oh, yes. I didn't know that. That's great. Or it's not part of Prime, I should say, but you can rent it on Amazon. <laughs> Right, I see. So it's not free, yeah, but you, see, you can pay for it. Okay. Right. Okay. Yes. That's, I'm, glad, so, I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad it's, it's out there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched it growing up, certainly. But if you, you know, I would recommend if you're going to pick just um, one story. There, I did a two-parter called "Know Thine Enemy." Uh, this also really spotlights Sherman Howard, the guy I was talking about who played Lex Luthor, and it the one the the main arc of it has to do with. Um, Superboy having to actually go into Lex Luthor's memories. So Superboy oh, wow. is living out. Lex Luthor's dysfunctional, oh, crazy childhood. And um, it's a really cool story and very well acted and very well directed. And uh, so if I was going to recommend, you know, it's a two-part, so it's two episodes. So whatever it is, if you've got to spend $1.99 each, I, I would I would highly recommend those because those are the ones out of all the shows that I did for Superboy that I am the most proud of. That's, that's great. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Throw it to my co-hosts. Y'all got anything else y'all want to ask? 
going back to Scooby Apocalypse, reading what what you've written so far and how all of the characters have so much emotional depth to them. There was a small section of Fred and Shaggy talking and Fred brings up how Daphne watched some of Orson Welles and Ingmar Bergman back in film school. And I'm like, that's really clever. I really, really love that. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, you know, you want, you hope you put it by putting in little touches like that. It makes the characters more three-dimensional and real, you know? Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, and Orson Welles, especially I, I adore Orson Welles. So, you know, you'll, you'll a lot, you'll, if you go through my comics, you'll find a lot of, or I did a series called the laughing times of savory 28 for IDW another creator owned thing. And Orson Welles shows up as a character in there at one point, you know, as Orson Welles, you know, best friends with this superhero character, who's the main character, you know? Uh, so, so, you know, that, that, that your, your, your passions as a writer always creep in there and, and your favorites always creep in there. But those are that, those are the kind of little touches that, Oh, she's a real person. You know, she went to film school. She likes these two directors, you know? And the fun of it for me as a writer is you get these people talking to each other and it's like, I'm not doing it. You know, <laughs> you know, Fred says this and I'm like discovering it as Fred is saying it. Oh, really? So that's who, that's what she does. She went, oh, isn't that interesting? Or people talk about in, in Justice League, you know, Beetle and Booster. You know, how did you guys come to the conclusion that you're going to make them this great comedy team at the center of the book? We didn't make that decision. We never made that decision. The characters ended up in a scene together in Keith's plot. I started them talking. And something clicked. And so Keith brought them in again and something clicked. And before we knew it, they were together because those guys wanted to be together, not because we decided it, because the characters decided it. And that's really, you know, the biggest thrill of writing for me is that that kind of discovery as you're writing. When the story takes off in a direction that I didn't expect, when the characters start doing things that I don't expect, God, that's amazing. That's, you, you, can't, you can't put a price on that. It's, it's, it's thrilling. As, as a writer to sit there and have that happen. I loved, loved, loved the second Booster Gold series, uh, which is not just not the first one. I love, love, love that one too. Mm-hmm. Basically, I love anything Booster Gold. And uh, I just had to point out, yeah, that's that one is fantastic. I actually have this showcase presents complete volume of Dan Durgan's run uh, on the first one. It's tremendous. And I would sooner be killed than sell it. Yeah, you know, Dan Dan must be very happy because that character, you know, who, you know, probably when he when he when he happened when he first came out in the 80s was like, you know, who would have expected that that character would be here, you know, 30 years later and hugely popular. So, you know, all props to him for creating this character that has all these elements that have lasted so long. And uh you know, I always joke, but it's but it's really true. I didn't really know who Booster Gold was before he showed up in Justice League. You know, so I'm just kind of following the basic beats of Keith's plot, and and we sort of, you know, we we just built our own booster on the foundation of Dan's uh, booster. You know, and um, and then you know people built on what we did after. And that's the interesting thing about comics too, because yes. there's no one interpretation to these characters. Everybody, it's 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 like I had this image once of this this great behemoth whale moving through the ocean right and let's just say that whale is the marvel universe or the dc universe pick your choice you know uh take your choice and and you know somebody jumps onto that whale with a harpoon and begins you know writing in the skin of the whale and then he gets thrown off and the next guy jumps on and begins right and so this story begins to take shape on this whale and you know those of us that are writing on the whale at some point we get thrown off but the whale goes on and more people keep jumping on and adding to the story you know and it's and and so we're all part of this interconnected thing 
And it doesn't matter. You know, if you create a character, someone else is going to pick that character up along the way. And I'm sure that Lee and Kirby and Ditko had no clue, although, you know, maybe Kirby did because he was kind of visionary, that all these years later, you know, these, this universe would be building and building and building up and out and in all directions, you know? It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And then we all get to partake of it and have our own little corner of that universe. It it really is. I like that image. Uh, of course, you, you did some of Kirby's Fourth World characters, I noticed, uh, in your canon, too. Yeah. Yeah, and another one of my favorite Justice League Unlimited uh, episodes was, uh, was you know, Mr. Miracle and Big Barda yes. and uh, Calabac. And they had, I thought it was the most brilliant casting of all time. Ed Asner was Granny Goodness. I mean, it was just fantastic. It couldn't get any better so than that. Good. And I think, uh, oh, I, I'm blanking on his name. The guy that played Worf. Who, who's the actor? Michael Dorn. Michael Dorn. Michael Dorn was Calabac. You know what I mean? Uh, they had Artie Johnson, who used to, in the 60s, was on Laughing, uh, who played Vermin Wunderbar. I mean, just like amazing casting. Oh, yeah. Like I noticed in uh, your... Uh in the uh, for the man who has everything, Eric Roberts just crushing it as Mongol. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know sometimes you don't realize as you're watching these shows or these movies just who they got working on these things. Just just amazing, just amazing. Thank you for, so much for coming on. Oh, it's yeah. a pleasure, absolute pleasure. It's been a true honor on our part. Where can we find you? You can find me. Well, I don't want you to find me in my house. I like my privacy. But you can yes. find me on Twitter. <laughs> on Twitter, uh, on Facebook. It's both, you know, just uh, just my name, James Dimatteis, F. James Dimatteis. And I have my website, jamesdimatteis.com. And uh, I always like, like to point out that, uh, that, you know, a lot of people have very negative experiences on social media. I feel like I've been very lucky. I've had very positive experiences. It's a great place for me to interact with the people that read and enjoy my work. I mean, you know, what's to complain about? And I really enjoy interacting uh, with the fans. So, you know, anyone that wants to approach me on social media and say, hey, or ask me a question, I'm always happy. I'm happy to interact. If someone leaves a comment on my on my website or on Facebook, I'll, I'll try I'll always try my very best to answer. I've noticed. You know, I always say we spend most <laughs> of our time alone in a room with our imaginary friends. So it's always nice to remember that there are actually people out there who read and enjoy this work. You know, and because uh, it's, you know, we get lost in our own heads doing this stuff. But there's a real world out there, allegedly, I hear. <laughs> I was going to say, I always do try to reach out to the people who work on Warner Brothers Animation and all that because of how much I love it. Yeah. It's always been mm-hmm. And people appreciate it. You know, yeah. I never take it for granted. Never. You know, when I'm at a convention and somebody walks up to me, one person, and says, you know, I read this story. And it pierced my heart. And it was, at a, you know, I've had this a lot. It was at a time in my life when I was really struggling. And what you had to say in that story, whether it was emotionally or psychologically or spiritually, whatever, it touched me. It helped me. You know, one person says that a whole, the whole, your whole career is worthwhile for one person like that, you know? So um, I never take any of that for granted. I really, really appreciate it when people take the time uh, to reach out to me and express the fact that they've enjoyed the work. Yeah. We have been The Omniplex. You can find us at The Omniplex on Twitter. You can email us, theomniplexpodcast at gmail.com. Find us, of course, at www.theomniplex.org. Find us on Facebook. Thank you very much for coming on. (laughs) It was a pleasure, guys. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you all.